Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 58th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we're going to talk about wildfire and COVID-19 with Max Moritz, fire ecologist and director of the Moritz Lab at the University of California in Santa Barbara. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to COVID Calls on the YouTube channel and you can watch live. You can also hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on podbean.com. I saw that we just arrived on Spotify yesterday and should be iTunes soon. So anywhere that you catch podcasts, you should be able to catch COVID Calls. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word, send suggestions for guests, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 3rd, 2020, there are 6,445,457 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 6,325,303 cases reported yesterday. 1,841,629 of those are in the United States, up from 1,820,523 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 106,696 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 105,644 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, She Held the Family Together, San Jose Woman is First Known U.S. COVID-19 Death. This was written by David DeBolt and appeared on April 24th, 2020, in the Mercury News. Something felt strange about Patricia Dowd's death. Dowd, 57, had no heart issues and strong lungs. She ate well, exercised, and recently had seen her doctor. So when the San Jose woman died February 6th of an apparent heart attack, her husband asked for an autopsy to determine what killed her. The flu-like symptoms Dowd experienced in her final days, it turned out, were COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. Dowd now is the first known person in the United States to die from the virus. She was in shape, Dowd's brother Ricardo Cabello said in an interview. She did spin class. She was always doing some kind of aerobics. Though she did not name Dowd publicly, Santa Clara County Health Officer Dr. Sarah Cody said that her death, as well as two others on February 17th and March 6th, are evidence that the coronavirus was spreading on the West Coast weeks earlier than initially believed. All three of the deaths occurred at home and appeared to have been the result of community transmission. Records from the County Medical Examiner's Office reviewed by the Mercury News Organization shows deaths rose 20% in March of this year compared to the same month last year. County officials said total deaths in the county have risen as much as 25% over 2019. On the eve of Cody's stunning announcement, County Executive Jeff Smith noted how quickly the virus can kill. It's not the kind of virus that waits around, he said. Some people are dead within a few days of diagnosis. Smith very well could have been talking about Dowd. Just a few weeks before her death, January 19th, 
the senior quality manager at Fremont-based Lamb Research Corporation, had invited family over to watch the 49ers playoff game. Her brother said she was healthy at the time. A few weeks later, on February 1st, Dowd was supposed to attend a funeral of a high school friend in Stockton, Cavello said. Both he and Dowd had attended St. Francis High School in Mountain View. She was a class of 1980. He doubted his truck could get him to the service, so his sister offered to drive him. But on the day of the funeral, she backed out. I just realized today that she saved my life, Cabello said in an interview. She called me that morning and told me she couldn't go. She wasn't feeling well. She died five days later. Dowd was the kind of 57-year-old who kept in close touch with friends from St. Joseph's Grammar School. Jim Carcass, 58, first met Dowd, then Cabello, in the first grade, and they were part of the same tight-knit group for more than 40 years. Through her 50s, Dowd was beloved by different cadres of close friends, Carcass said, from a scrapbooking group to her lamb colleagues to fellow members of the San Francis High School marching band, where she had been a flag girl. Dowd had a loud, contagious laugh that rang through annual holiday parties and monthly hangouts with the high school gang, relatives and friends said. At Christmas with family, she wanted to sit at a place where she would be looking at the faces of the kids and the brothers and sisters that were opening the presents she gave them, said Cabello. After their mother died, he added, she held the family together. She was just true, true, Carcass said, remembering that when his parents died, she made a point to drop by his house a few miles away in San Jose regularly, just to talk, would be there for you, whatever it takes. Dowd was not at work the day she died, but had been in contact with a coworker, as was her habit. She always was quick to reply to a text or an email, those who knew her said. So when the text messages she had been sending, the colleague suddenly stopped, Cabello said, people started to think something was wrong. She always answered text messages, he said. Two hours later, her adult daughter found her dead. Around 700 people attended Dowd's funeral in Mountain View, which took place three weeks after her death, before local and state shelter-in-place orders ended such gatherings. Those who knew her have been left trying to put two and two together, Carcass said. In November, Dowd traveled to Beijing for work. In January, she went to Oregon. Nobody knows where she picked up coronavirus. Still, amidst the confusion and against the backdrop of a worldwide pandemic, they've continued to grieve. There's a lot of questions that we're all obviously trying to answer. It depresses the heck out of us, Carcass said. I want to shout out to the world and say, this person's not a stat. She was just an unbelievable person. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today and introduce my guest, Max Moritz. Max Moritz is a wildfire specialist at the University of California Cooperative Extension, part of the University of California Agriculture and Natural Resources Division. He now manages the Moritz Lab, his lab from the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he's an adjunct professor at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management. And he's also an affiliate of the Earth Research Institute. Much of his research is focused on understanding the dynamics of fire regimes at relatively broad scales and applying this information to planning and management of fire-prone landscapes. He's used a number of different spatial approaches to quantitative analysis of fire history patterns stemming from his early work on chaparral shrublands in the Santa Barbara region. He's very widely published, does a lot of public education, and just in full disclosure, uh, Max and I have also published together, and we would encourage you to take a look at a, a piece 
and I have to give Max 98% of the credit for this, a piece that appeared in American Scientist in 2016 called Coexisting with Wildfire, which now does seem almost like a century ago to me. Max, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, that does seem like a long time ago. But thank you for having me, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Me too. I, I usually start these just by asking people where they're calling in from and how things are there. So let's let's do that. Um, where are you now, and and what's the situation with the pandemic there? So I'm calling from ho- my home office here in Santa Barbara. Um, Santa Barbara. I think um, I think we were doing pretty well. Relatively low numbers of cases. Uh, the the I think the the public here is pretty proactive in Santa Barbara. It, it's a, um, you know, very, very activist culture. And so I think when uh, when the, the orders came through to, to shelter in place, people took it very seriously. And um, we saw everybody wearing masks. You know, people were really, really following the rules um, for what that's worth. I think re- more recently, um, you know, California has kind of relaxed some of the the restrictions Santa Barbara has. We have some outdoor dining, and uh, that's coinciding with the start of the tourist season here. So actually, we're seeing a lot of people that probably aren't, you know, they're, they're not locals, they're not from here. Mm-hmm. A lot less people wearing masks, um, gatherings, you know, quite a bit larger than we would have seen even just a few weeks ago mm-hmm. in the, on the beaches and in the parks. So I, I think... Uh, some of us are kind of wondering what what we're going to see as a result. Um, but anyway, it, it 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 so far has been pretty pretty good, I think. Um, I'm going to ask you about how you're able to do your research at this time. It's having been uh, lucky enough to be out into field sites with you previously. It's very hard for me to imagine you cooped up in the house yeah. trying to get yeah. ready for for wildfire season. And I'm not sure that term even means anything to people anymore, but I'm going to I'm going to use it and you can correct me. But we are, we are moving towards a period of time when historically you expect more fires and it should be a time of preparedness. Right. So how has the pandemic shaped that? Yeah, it has. It has had an impact. I mean, my own personal situation, um, we 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 have some of our projects that are um you know, their research projects, computer modeling of fire probabilities and hazard patterns and things like that, that that you could really, you could really do anywhere. So people on my team that are are working on those questions are, are are not as disruptive, right? They can work from, from the home or wherever is, is most effective and safe for them. Some of the, the field work that we had planned for this coming uh, season has really gotten um, impacted, right? We're off to a very slow start because some of those people um, ended up, you know, moving back to the town that they grew up in and working remotely part time until until things can ramp back up. And so we've we've we're looking at the fire season starting up, and we we don't have the crews out there doing the sampling. Um, this project is looking at plant water stress uh, and and ability, for example, and and, and so we. Our plan was to have the fire season where everything greens up and then track it all the way through down to the to the end before the the rain start and and I'm still hopeful that we're gonna get that going but it's definitely uh, gotten a slow start um, and I think overall you know fire preparedness has has similarly um, 
I don't want to say it's stalled, but it, you know, the training season for, for firefighters, for example, if you wanted to bring new people on coincided with the, with uh, the onset of, of the COVID restrictions. Right. So I think the the word that I've heard is that the crews are crews are quite a bit smaller as a result of that. Um, uh, wildfire preparedness efforts. We had wildfire preparedness week recently, and uh, I don't want to say it came and went with it with without any you know hoopla, but it certainly wasn't your wildfire preparedness week. We had we had a large community event planned where we were, were going to have speakers, and uh, that was canceled. Um, and so I, I think that um, the other example would be our fire safe council. We have these these small community, relatively small community groups that that get together and look for grants or, or discuss problems that we want to tackle, and so on. And uh, we haven't met right for for weeks and weeks and weeks. So all these things are are symptomatic of probably what's going on across a good deal of the Western U.S. Um, as we as we head into the fire season. Can you just break it down for us a little bit? I mean, you live in a part of the country where wildfire and wildfire preparedness are thoroughly enmeshed in civil society. Um, and But people may not be as familiar with with who really manages things there. In a Cal, there's Cal Fire and then there's sort of local governance sure. that's involved and even individual homeowners and community organizations I know are engaged too. Could you just say a little bit more so we can understand how sure. deeply enmeshed it is in the society there? Yeah, it is. Depending on where you live uh, and Santa Barbara is a great example, you know, we've had fires historically that have burned right into the, right into the neighborhoods, the, the wildland urban interface, we, we call it the, the wooey. Um, so it's, it's on everybody's mind in a place like this. Increasingly, we've had fires burn into urbanized portions of Northern California. Um, so it's it's really that's that's been happening in Southern California for a long time. But it's really becoming, yeah, kind of a, a way of life to to become, you know, to get ready for the fire season and and to to um, to know what you're going to do when and if an event occurs. The a lot of that outreach, a lot of that extension and outreach. Um, falls into the the hands of the agencies, right? And some of it falls the hands in into the hands of academics or cooperative extension, like like myself. Um, at the statewide level, we have Cal Fire, um, who who um, basically is kind of the fire department for the state, if you want to think of it that way. If mm -hmm. there's a lot of what we would call state responsibility areas that uh, are not under the jurisdiction, at least from a fire perspective. Um, and from a building perspective, um, they're not a local, they're not a, there's no local authority, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, these tend to be more rural areas. And so the state, if there's a fire, the state is in charge uh, of coming to deal with that. And, and for pre-fire uh, activities or, or defensible space inspections, the state is also responsible for that. So Cal Fire is the state entity. Um, and then in every county, you have often a county fire department, or sometimes Cal Fire covers that plays that role at the county level. But we we here have a, a county fire department, and then as you get to finer and finer scales, you often have local fire departments. There'll be Santa Barbara City, or you know Carpenter, or yeah Carp Summerland, or Montecito. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of those agencies have different different scales of responsibility, I guess, and they all. They all try to put out fires and prepare for the fire season and get the word out um, to the to the the civilians, 
as they, they sometimes call them. And did they all have their their own firefighters? I mean, are we thinking about cores yeah. of firefighters at these many different levels who are prepared yeah. to go in into action? Yep. Yep. And then when there's a really big event, um, you know, they'll have interagency control and they'll pull all of those different firefighters together under a single kind of command structure. It, it, it has a lot of parallels to military, to military activity and military command structure. So, um, but that's what you, you have to do when you're trying to organize and coordinate that many people in a, in a really big event. Have they been exempted from the shelter in place restrictions that have been put in the state? I mean, are the firefighters considered essential? You said you thought maybe the crews were a little bit smaller, the trainings were a little bit, a little bit smaller. Is there I heard that the there? trainings, I heard that the trainings for new people were smaller. And so some of the crews, the, the actual hand crews, you know, the, the crews that are going to go out and fight fires are smaller. I think, um, you know, at the stations where the firefighters are, are actually living and, and doing their work, I, I don't know that they, um, I think that they're probably, you know, sheltering in place just like a family would, but they actually, for the stations where the firefighters actually live, you know, they have 10 day shifts or, or whatever. I think that they, um, you know, they, they almost, they almost are like a pod. They're, they're, you know, they're living and sheltering together as if they were kind of a family because that's, they have to, they, they live and work together in pretty close quarters. So they're already used to being in these sort of almost quarantine wouldn't be the correct word, but they almost sort of live that way, huh? They kind of, yeah, they do. They, they, um, yeah, I live very close to a fire station, so I get to see a lot of it, but yeah, it is almost like that. So one of the things that, that there's been a lot of news reporting um, about, you know, so worrying about hurricane season, and we mm -hmm. talked about that on COVID calls on Monday, and and you know worrying about fire season, which we're talking about today, um, in the context. So we have the pandemic, and then those things are coming. But it struck me that we've got also a lot of active hurricane and wildfire recovery. Uh, communities around the United States. So if you want to know what that's going to look like, you actually don't have to look too far. You can go to Puerto Rico or Port Arthur, Texas or North Carolina. And in California, there are also still ongoing recovery from the campfire, I'm assuming, for example, and maybe sure. other places. So how has yeah. the pandemic yeah. affected that? Let's see. I mean, again, kind of anecdotal stories that, that I've run across and, and, and heard from people. I'm a, I'm a, a little bit involved in the campfire rebuild situation. Um, uh, it goes on. There's there's planning um, and, and and public input on on you know how how that's going to play out. Um, I know that there's also some rebuilding. I think uh, in California construction was not shut down completely, um, and, and so there there has been rebuilding. I know lots of agencies. You know you can't go. You can't as easily go into the planning department and get your permits um, approved and evaluated. But I, I think that um, it's probably slowed things down, but it hasn't stopped the recovery efforts um, in many areas. So let me ask you um, just to this issue of preparing for this this season. And, and so getting into some of these, you know, some of the thinking right now about how, how you prepare people for a fire psychologically what kind of preparations need to go in how you communicate risk um, walk us through that a little bit and 
and if it's been changing, because mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, the long history of wildland fire in the United States for a long time was, I forget the time of day, it was 11 o'clock rule. Was, was that what it was? Every fire needed to be a forest service head, yeah. right? Something right. like that. So there would be no, no burning. And then that has changed. And, and I think maybe there's been some, some change in a lot of discussion about how to inform people how to act. Should they ever evacuate? Should people shelter? At home? Sure. Let's talk about those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, the goal is to have people that are living on fire prone landscapes, have them accept um, that inevitability and, and prepare for it, right? To live as if it's just going to happen and you, you want to have, you want to have taken whatever steps were needed for when that eventuality occurs. Um, because the worst thing that can happen is, is it can, you know, feel like a surprise where you haven't, you don't, you don't have your evacuation plan ready. You don't know where you're going to go. You don't know what you're going to take. You haven't spent the time prepping your own property, right? Cleaning the, you're, they have, we have what's called defensible space typically around the home ignition zone. Um, and so out to some distance, there are different buffer distances away from the home, but you want to have cleared out, um, cleared out any, any vegetation that could burn if fire were to come or embers burning bits of vegetation that come from relatively far away, often wind blown embers. And, um, you got to think about that too. Where can those lodge and start fires in the, in the gutters of, in the rain gutters, if they're not cleaned out, um, you need to think about the, the attic and crawl space vents. Um, are they, are they screened or are they designed so that embers can't get in them? Mm -hmm. Um, do you have a wood roof, a wood shake shingle roof, which is, really a terrible vulnerability in a, in a, in a fire prone area. Trying to get people to think about, you know, as the fire season approaches, think about the things they need to do to get ready uh, for the fire season and the things that they can do to their own home to, to reduce those vulnerabilities and, and reduce the chances of, of, of home loss. Um, so historically we've, we've tried to get um, the agencies and the, and the academics have tried to get people to, to know what to do, what what are the highest priorities? Because mm -hmm. it could be a very long list if you think of it, right? I mean, it could be a daunting list, and and it could get very expensive. Mm -hmm. So we want to prioritize that, and and get the the best cost benefit out of it, in terms of reducing um, risk. The you brought up shelter in place. I know you know we've been talking about shelter in place with re respect to COVID, but sh right. shelter in place has a has a long history in, in fire too. Um, that the implication there is that during a wildfire situation, you might not evacuate and whether it's by choice or whether it's because you get a, a the evacuation notice too late and you can't safely evacuate. Mm -hmm. The idea is that, you know, you may have to, you may have to hunker down and, and weather the storm in inside your home. And so all of the things that you would want to think about, given that possibility, you know, you, you need to, you need to look around, walk around your home and think about what you would do and, 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 and how you, you might survive that, how your home, your home might survive it. Um, it, it. In contrast to COVID where, where the authorities are telling everybody to shelter in place and, and you know, a mark of how well we're doing is, is how well we, we adhered to that. In fire, it, it, the authorities do not generally want you to shelter in place. They want you to get out. 
He wants you to leave when they say it's time to go. Um, so in the context of wildfire, it's usually if you can't get out. If you don't get a warning in time, if the tri fire is traveling too fast and you don't get a warning at all, what, do you, what would you need to have done and thought about? That it strikes me as a, as a complicated set of risk messages and it implies a lot of knowledge on the, on the part of the, of the resident. So that mm. you should trust um, you know, public authorities telling you, okay, it's time to go and that you would have a sense of where to go and how. But then at some point, the conditions make it such that you, you might have to shelter and then how to know, how to know what might trigger those different things. I mean, to yeah. me, it sounds like a risk communication nightmare. It's not my it, particular it, area of research, but. No, you're right, um, Scott. It, it's really, it's really fuzzy and it's fraught with some liability concerns. I mean, the, the fire agency folks generally don't want to talk about that. Right? They, they, they don't even want that to be on the radar. They, they, want, they want the message to be very clear that when the fire comes and we give an evacuation uh, warning that you're, you get ready to go, and when we give an evacuation notice, you go. And often, they, often it's not even talked about up until the moment when you're supposed to evacuate where you're supposed to go because the fire could be coming from a different direction if you think about uh -huh. it. Sure. Right. Often it's pretty clear. It's going to be coming from the wildlands over there. <laughs> right. But yeah, but even that, you know, th there's some variation there and they might want you to head the, head the different direction down a road because there's a, a roadblock and a backup and lots of people die in their cars in, in a, in a, in a, an evacuation gone wrong. Um, so I think from the, from the agency perspective, it does make sense that they, they want the message to be simple. When the, when the orders come, you go. Um, any discussion about, well, if you can't go, if you don't get out in time, here's all this stuff that you should do to your home and, and your property. And, and, um, it, it makes for a, a challenging, yeah, a challenging messaging and education campaign. But I think, I think the campfire in particular with paradise burning and, and so many, so many deaths just in the last few years with the campfire and the tubs fire that burned into Santa Rosa. People have talked much more openly about what needs to happen if, if we can't get people out. It's it's mm -hmm. there are vulnerable populations right. that, that that we need to worry about here. What do we need to have thought about for, for, for those circumstances? And and ideas like local refuges of last resort. Should we harden some some central public structures or facilities that mm -hmm. if people can't get out, they have a safe place to retreat to. Not that they should go there if they're told to evacuate. Right. If they can get out, you should get out. But if for some reason, if things go wrong, you, we just don't want a bunch of people not getting out and dying, trying. Right. So so it has brought up interesting, interesting conversations and planning. The other thing that's interesting around that is firefighters are often assumed to go uh, protect structures. Right. Evacuate the people, send the, the firefighters in to protect structures. There's some talk of that shifting to protecting evacuation routes as the primary, as the as the priority. Oh. Now, kind of imagine if if the mentality, the whole culture shifts from protecting homes to protecting evacuation routes. That's going to have some big, that could potentially have big impacts on on home loss numbers and and 
disasters, you know, what we can what we see as a disaster. Vulnerable populations actually become the focus of emergency planning. They become the focus of risk communication. You sort of assume that those with means and capacity will mostly operate according to the networks that they have, their family, their church, their work, their whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. That you really should be doing the planning for these much more vulnerable populations who, who either can't evacuate um, or mm-hmm. if they do evacuate, they're going to have special needs when they evacuate. I'd like to get your your take on that because it really does flip things around in the way we think about how we prepare for the worst, right? It does. The it it brings up a whole bunch of of interesting thoughts. The the um, while in the wildfire context, um, historically, the primary view of of the wildfire problem is that it's one of fuel accumulation and land management. Right. It, it really it has really been um, assumed that that's where the problem, the problems lie and that's where the solutions therefore lie. And actually, you know, vulnerable populations don't really come up in that in that flavor. Right. Of conversation, mm-hmm. that painting of the of the of the picture. Right. And I think when you consider wildfire more as a public health and safety issue. Like we consider a lot of other, you know, hazards, you get a really different set of conversations and a little, uh, a really different um, set of perspectives, and that's where you know that's where this whole th- this whole issue of vulnerable populations is is huge. And again, I think the the fires that that we've had in the last couple of years really highlight that. It's def- it it depends a little bit on how you define vulnerable, because in in some agency reports, I have seen vulnerable. Kind of imply that they're, they're, they're communities that are exposed to wildfire, so therefore they're vulnerable, which is a little different than the way you know many and we are using it right here. We're thinking of people that for some reason are underserved or you know they have fewer opportunities or resources to mitigate risk. You know, could be a socioeconomic basis, it could be age. Anyway, these are people that that are vulnerable to greater greater impacts. Um, for whatever reason. And uh, when we start thinking about that, it, it, it does, it, it might even mean we plan our communities differently when we plan them, right? How you cite hospitals, how you cite, right. um, you know, senior living centers, how, whether you, whether you have built into the, the community, some, some refuge of last resort for, for, for people who, who have these problems, you know, they can't get out for whatever reason or don't get the, don't get the word in time. They are at a disadvantage because they don't have the resources, uh, the means often to either to get the messages of how to, to mitigate their own risk or the resources to actually accomplish that. So often it takes money you know, to do some of this uh, or connections to have some of these things happen, right? And, and actually post-fire, there's a group that I've been working with at UC Santa Barbara here. Post-fire, they, they've kind of, um, they've kind of latched onto this idea of salience that that after a, a wildfire in a given place um, and for a short period of time, communities have often the ability to to influence 
presumably they're local politicians and have something done, right? Look, we just had this event here. It's in the news. People, it's a salient event it's a, and people are concerned and that they leverage that to actually have something done in the community, which is kind of counter, if you think about it, in some ways to when you would want to do it or where you would want to do it in the first place. They just had a fire. They just had a giant fuel reduction event. <laughs> so, so it's sort of a perverse outcome in a way that that when when risk is low-ish, salience is high. And, and right. anyway, they've also, I think, started to look into the fact that, you know, richer, whiter, more educated communities are also probably able to have greater that greater responsiveness in that in that process. And so, you know, even in post-fire um, activities, not, not necessarily rebuilding, but but post-fire, you know, resources being put toward the fire problem, um, vulnerable populations from a socioeconomic perspective are gonna be are gonna be hampered there too, probably. So anyway, it plays out, it plays out in all kinds of different ways. I guess I want to remind people that we're uh, you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking today to Max Moritz, and we're talking about wildfire and COVID nineteen. I just want to stick with this line just for a second more, Max, if you if you would, because it strikes me that pandemic making some sense of how people have reacted to the requirements to shelter in place. Now we're talking about pandemic shelter in place. Yeah, and the and the pushback to that, the the nuances of that, and how that has been different state by state, and even within states, different rules about who can go out and under what conditions, that we should have been paying attention to the kind of work that people in the wildfire space have been doing for a long time now. I, I wonder what, what kind of transferability do you see there? And I guess I'm also curious on what you see the flip side. What are you seeing? What have you seen these last few months in the reaction to the pandemic that you can read back into, into, into wildfire preparedness? Yeah. Yeah. Again, some anecdotes. Um, I think there are some interesting parallels or maybe contrasts because, you know, in the, in the shelter in place order for the pandemic, um, you know, we had the rule followers actually doing that, and we had kind of the, maybe the more, um, I don't know, self-sufficient or or, or gallant or uh, risk-taking folks um, not sheltering in place, right, and 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 um, breaking some of the rules. In the fire context, it's flipped. It's the the rule followers are the ones that don't shelter in place, right. And right. a more sort of, you know, self-sustaining, uh, resilient um, characters that feel like they can they can take it um, are the ones that actually try to shelter in place and expose themselves. So it's sort of a risk assessment. It's a yeah. personal risk assessment thing where, where each, you know, in each in each context, the, the people that are that are more risk averse, maybe are following are following the orders if they trust the, the authorities and they're risk averse. They're going to follow the orders, and if if they don't trust the authorities as much, or they're a little more risk taking, they might not. Right? Um, yeah, and I'm sure there are some parallels and lessons there. I, I I don't have you know I don't have a great I, a great one off the the top of my head right now. But somewhere um, out there, there's um, there's a guy. It's probably a guy who is absolutely to the committed to the idea that if a fire comes, he's not leaving his house for sure. And he's been the same guy, it's undoubtedly a guy, uh, who 
has been out and about in the pandemic and even perhaps not wearing a mask, you know, sort of flouting those rules because, hey, I, I don't need to do that. I mean, yeah, the president of the United know. States I, has been that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's hard to say, I think, because I have met both kinds. I've met some I've met some some old timers that have seen a lot of fire and they're just really comfortable with with mm. their own situation. Sure. They kind of know they know what to worry about and 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 they might they might very well be the kind of people that would take take shelter in place for COVID pretty seriously. But I think you're right. There's also, uh, you know, whatever, a more macho uh, risk-taking um, type of, of character that that falls into both of those. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those so the, the challenge it, it strikes me in a lot of this then is to, is to, to understand the concerns of those people. Absolutely, yeah. because what are their civil liberties concerns? So they have something. There's something motivating that that you know, and not to look if they're putting other people at risk, we've got to take care of that. And I think you know that's been an issue in some places, but in most cases, it's much more subtle than not, and not as clear. You want to just have sort of risk communication that also reaches them, because if they're putting themselves at risk, we should care about that. Yeah, we should, but we should also, uh, at some level if they're comfortable with it and they're not putting other people at risk, it's kind of their, it's their choice too. Right. But the problem is in many cases, it's putting other people at risk. Right. And that's where I think people are, people are denying the reality that it's putting other people at risk. Um, you know, if they're not wearing a mask cause they feel like they, they're not going to get it. Well, you've completely missed the point of the fact that you're supposed to be wearing masks. So other people don't get it in case you're a, a non-symptomatic carrier. Right. And in the shelter, uh, in the evacuation and shelter fire situation, it's not entirely true that people who shelter in place aren't putting somebody else at risk either. Because if a fire, if a firefighter knows that this entire neighborhood is empty and it's getting bad and they can just leave and not worry. But if they know that one person is still back there sheltering in place, it's a totally different, totally different story. Right. And so they will go for them. Typically. I mean, unless yeah. they simply just can't. Yeah. It's a much harder. It's a much much messier right. situation. That yeah. Yep. I'm struck every time we talk, Max. I I try. I end up pulling you over into being a, a fire anthropologist. I pull you over into humanities and social sciences, and and so when I, want, I want to shift over now. I want to talk a little bit about ecology. I mean, I want to yeah. talk more about science. Um, and I'm curious, first of all, just how you're able to do your your work and thinking about this as something where we may be unsheltered for a while and then we have to return back. I mean, I think this is going to be um, a situation with multiple, this is a play with many acts and even a vaccine, people are sort of worried that that's a techno fix that we shouldn't mm. rely on as much as some people are talking about. Right. So what's the impact for your, your research portfolio, particularly about getting in the field? Yeah. Um, I can't remember if we, we went into this at all. I don't think we did, but yeah, I had the field work that I have. Um, like, we, like I think we said earlier, we're getting off to yeah. a pretty slow start. Right. Um, Absolutely. And, and I think that the, you the can tolerate that for a while. Yeah. For a while. I mean, at, at some point, the plans that you had for covering a full fire season are not going to, you know, are not going to play out. We wanted to be out there at the beginning and, and sampling all the way down through the, through the, the dry down. Um, but the university has been pretty careful and I respect that. And we're starting to see some ramp up, some ramp up um, guidance 
on how we might how we might do that. I, I think the key the key is really can we do it safely? Can we can we have all the all the the protocols and the gear and everything that we might need to to put people back out and, and do it well and do it safely? And that's I, I think we got to make sure we can do that um, and do it right. So anyway, in, in a couple of weeks, we're, we're hopeful that we'll we'll actually be doing doing some of that field work again. Um, so that we don't miss the whole fire season. And the members of your lab, how do they work? Do they work in teams of, of two or they have stations that they go to individually and gather data day by day? Or how can, I mean, I'm sure yeah, it's so, more complicated than that, but. Well, there, it depends. There, you know, there are some that are doing computer, mostly computer modeling, and you can do that. They're yeah. good. They're good. And then, um, so that, for example, the field, uh, the field and lab teams, um, they might be working in groups of two pretty, pretty current, you know, uh, pretty commonly, maybe three occasionally. So, you know, doing that with appropriate social distancing and whatever, you know, if we're going to wear face masks and, and ventilate the rooms uh, when they're inside versus, you know, staying six feet apart and, mm -hmm. um, so on. I, I think it's all doable. We just have to make sure that we're, we're doing it safely, right, and 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 following the rules. Um, yeah, and I I I, uh, I think we're still going to get some really interesting stuff out of the fire season. Um, I think one of the one of the strange things that we're probably going to see is is how wildfire and 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 quarantine or or you know COVID in general plays out. You know, I've already seen I've already seen. Um, guidance for evacuations for example you know if, if there's a fire and people have to evacuate how are they going to do that safely probably the same as for hurricanes right you know are we going to have temperature screenings before people go into a a shelter i mean or a uh you know an evacuation center um and so on all that's gonna all that's gonna i think there's some giant question marks right over how that's all going to play out and what we're going to learn from it do you know who's doing that that planning well, i mean it's been unclear the, to me local, the yeah. local office of emergency management has put out some guidance about that for, for for here for example and i suspect that's you know happening happening everywhere i don't know how consistent it is mm -hmm. that would be interesting too to find out you know depending on the the flavor of, of a, a given county how 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 that might vary I, I i don't know in some ways it's corollary we were talking about vulnerable populations and the complexity that that adds i mean it's really a big gestalt switch for planners um, yeah. and and so is this sort of compound disaster or cascading disaster yeah, right. whatever metaphor you want to yeah. use and and i'm curious how you think about that in the science i'm i'm been thinking a lot about how we can build crosswalks across different disciplines right now to think about complicated problems like this one yeah no that that's really interesting i mean in in ecology, we often hear people talking about compound disturbances or um, or compound vulnerabilities. But this idea of compound, you know, that any one any one event um, might fall within the natural range of historical variability for a given system. You know, any a big fire, it might seem uh, it might seem really large, but if we look back through time, you know, those sizes, fires of those sizes have have occurred unusual, rare, but they're not outside. They're not just complete outliers, right? Mm -hmm. They're somewhere in that cloud of of the historical range of variability. And so, um, whether it be a drought or a fire or a flood, these these natural events, 
the systems are usually somewhat resilient to events that are within that range, that observed range. And where, where we don't know what's going to happen or where we, we think we're going to see novel um, and, and possibly really, really negative, really catastrophic outcomes, um, particularly with climate change kind of ramping or, or priming, priming these systems for more and more extreme events are, are, are when you have sequences of events, compound events in, in sequence. So you have a, a flood or a fire followed by a flood, you know, or a, mm-hmm. a fire followed by a drought or vice versa. A drought followed by a fire. Those, if they're really extreme events, lead to kind of no analog or or, or mm-hmm. unusual novel outcomes where you might have big system shifts, right? With 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 real serious consequences. Um, but that idea of of novel sequences and compound disturbances, I think that that could lend itself to to what we were talking about. You know, sort of the, in coupled human natural systems, how does how does something that's outside the norm, way outside the norm, and you have a couple of different events like that outside the norm, how does that really destabilize a system and lead to lead to big shifts, big changes? Um, in the in the in the ecosystems you look at, what happens when you do have a big shift? Like well, so great you reach a new equilibrium. So a great example. Um, in, in the shrublands of, of much of Southern California, Chaparral is the plant community. Um, and it's very, uh, very fire prone. And many of the species are, are fire adapted in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as the, the fire say isn't too frequent. So mm-hmm. for example, if you had a compound disturbance might be two really large and, uh, two really large fires back to back. You know that's that's going to happen so frequently that this, the the native plants haven't regenerated, set seed, and they're the, the they're not there to rebound after that second fire. Or for example, a, a fire followed by a real extreme drought. Hmm. You know that that is very likely with with climate change, and that has a big impact on what is able to regenerate hmm. after that fire. So you might get a lot less native regeneration. And a lot more weedy, invasive, herbaceous, you know, grasses that bounce back in their place. And those grasses can bring fire into that system now every single year, right? Instead of on a longer, you know, decadal plus time scale with the native shrubs. So so that those are the kinds of big shifts that you can see that then persist, um, possibly, possibly, you know, in our lifetimes uh, forever, right? As long as there's fire now and grasses carrying fire into those systems, they're never going to come back as shrublands, for example. And the same thing can happen with forests. You can get type conversions as a result of some of these compound um, disturbances and novel. Can you bring, I mean, even the, the use of the term novel here obviously makes us think of the novel coronavirus. I mean, can we hmm. can we bring it's that new. kind of thinking over into, I mean, preparing for a pandemic and simultaneously you just touched on it a minute ago simultaneously preparing for wildfire and then on top of that preparing for the kind of um racial you know kind of civil unrest that's connected with racial injustice i mean we're talking about and i know the analogies aren't perfect but i think they're useful for me at least to think with about how you have these systems that we tend to think of them somehow as separable and then we find out that when you do begin to have all of these stresses simultaneously, they reveal things that maybe should have been visible all along, mm-hmm. 
but then they become really, really evident. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these systems that might appear, re, you know, resilient, which is a big a buzzword, resilience now, it, it's really hard to define and quantify. But, <clears throat> you know, in, in isolation, these systems or these disturbances, these processes, you know, they might be resilient to shocks to the, to the system. But then when you have a bunch of interactions and novel compounding, you know, interacting uh, extreme events that um, it, it, the, the resilience to this, uh, the systems just gets compromised, you know, however you want to define resilience, it just, it just has more and more trouble holding together and, and or bouncing back the way, the way, the way it always has, mm. um, you know, and, and in a social context, um, you know, maybe that means there's some good that can come out of it. Right. And in an ecological context, it usually means, you know, there's a, there's a big negative outcome. Some, we've lost the forest and it's become a, a degraded, you know, system that, that it, it wasn't, it doesn't provide the same services or, or habitat. Um, but at least in a social context, maybe, you know, assuming we can learn from, learn from our past and, and our mistakes, you know, maybe some good can come from the, the, well, the change. And that, and that was really what I was going to follow up with. I mean, there's such a strong rhetoric around learning from disaster and I'm, I'm skeptical, not nihilistic, but skeptical of that sometimes. I think some of the deeper structures, like in California, you know, the impetus to rebuild and real estate development being such a strong player, yeah. and that's true in coastal communities too. Um, but what's your take on that in the in the wildfire space? Where do you see people learning? What kinds of things have have you seen people yeah. learn after fire? Well, that's a good. That's a, a great question. Um, I think one of the, and, and I, I, you know, and for the sake of full disclosure, it's something that I've been interested in and, and pursuing. So it, it's, it's an example that comes to mind for this. But one of the things that we're hearing more about is, um, is where and how we build our communities, right? I mean, that's obviously a big part of what we need to do right if we're going to get ahead of, of this problem, the wildfire-related problem that and climate change, it's making it worse. Um, a lot of emphasis on where and how we build has gone uh, in the past on building codes of the structure itself. Mm. You know, the materials and the methods that are used uh, in building the actual home, for example, have gotten have gotten a lot of, of importance. And, and hazard maps that, that guide building codes so that homes that are in this versus that hazard rating class are, are built up to certain standards. One of the things that we're learning, and it's a kind of an emerging and, and um, hopeful area of study, is that in addition to building codes, there's other, there are other issues um, about the siting and the layout of a community that are really important, and they're not codified anywhere. They're not regulated. So whereas building codes, at least in California and in some other places, building codes are regulated by their, you know, by what hazard class they might be in for, for fire. Where you put the home on the property is pretty important. How you lay out the homes in the community with respect to, say, existing um, parts of the landscape that might be really fire prone or they might be buffers. Right? You can have agricultural lands or you can have irrigated kind of green space or 
Um, you can imagine golf courses, you know, that you could have the golf course around the community instead of the community around the golf course. You know, there's all kinds of, I mean, that's kind of a silly, simple example, but it does highlight, we just haven't thought that much about that scale of planning and urban design. Um, clustered development is, is um, easier to defend, right? But with, with fewer firefighters um, and built up to, built up to, you know, really stringent building codes, it's probably a lot safer than sprawly um, development. Um, there's a there's a whole bunch of things we're learning about about the the design and siting of new communities. I think that that provides some hope that you know, for example, in California we have a we have a housing crisis, right? We don't have nearly the the affordable housing that we we need, but we can't just say no more building on fireprone landscapes. We just have to do it smarter, right? right? And there's a bunch of things we're learning about how to do that. I'm I'm thinking again about uh, I mean that's such to me a really profound lesson because it brings a sort of human centered design approach into into all of this and also a sort of hazards realism about you know not to act as if these hazards might happen to us or we hope they don't or if they do we wait for the fire service or or we wait for the CDC or the paramedic um, but we actually take that in um, I've been thinking about that in terms of, of elder care. Hmm. And I know that's an issue, I guess, in fire as, as well, hospitals, elder care, schools, you know, places where there may be a higher standard of concern and care for where they're cited and, the, and standards of construction. It seems like yeah. another place where we could have been borrowing some lessons from fire to prepare for the pandemic. Sure. sure. Yeah. Elder care. Yeah. And, and schools, you know, why, why, why aren't our schools just these places where, you know, safety is safety from all kinds of hazards is is the the first thing that goes into how they're laid out, how they're designed, how they're built. Right. Um, oh, I know we're almost up on time. Uh, I did have one little quick question. I want to get a hit okay. from you. And this is um, uh, after the campfire, you know, uh, President Trump made his trip to California reluctantly. And, and he said a lot of things about forests and about fire, he says a lot of things um, about disasters, and I wonder, you know, how people in California have thought about that, or did they dismiss that as just that's just pure politics? Um, you know, he's already got it in for California, but I mean, when the president of the United States speaks in depth about and uses terms like forest management, mm -hmm. that puts a shiver up my spine because that makes me think, well, there's other politicians who are going to hear that and. It, this could lead us into some unwise policy directions. Sure. Maybe I'm maybe I'm making too much of it, but I, how did well, that sound to you when he started talking about yeah. vacuuming the forest? Well, yeah, raking the forest. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it, the the one could hear what he was saying and take away the message that you know we just haven't logged enough of the forest, so we have a forest fire problem. And it's just forest managers. Uh, forest managers came out um, saying that that is just not true you know it, there there's there's definitely reasons to to you know not to export our problems and, and buy foreign foreign logged um you know wood because we should probably keep our you know keep keep that problem here and do it right if we're gonna if we're gonna face the the reality of needing wood to build with but you know you, you Logging and fire hazard are, are just two very separate issues. So most of the people that know anything about this just kind of 
shook their heads and said, you know, he's got a, a very simplistic misunderstanding of the way the systems actually work. The other thing is, you know, to, to look at the, all the home losses and fatalities that we had and then actually make the leap that it's a forest fire problem is also a disconnect. Right. It's a wildland urban interface problem. It, these aren't even in traditional forests for the most part. These are in the built environment, uh, many, many, many times in shrublands, uh, but but not places where a traditional fuels reduction in a forest w might actually save a home. It, it's more about the homes burning and the homes themselves are the fuel that carry the fire to the next home and the next home. So, yeah, there were, there were multiple layers of, of misunderstandings on, on a lot of what we're hearing. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls, and tomorrow we're going to stick with discussion of compound disasters. I'm going to talk to Stephen Flynn and to Arnold Howitt. We're going to talk about public policy and 9-11 and terrorism and disaster preparedness and many other topics along those lines. And I want to thank Max Moritz for making an hour to talk about the pandemic and about wildfire. It's always a pleasure to see you and hear about what you have been up to Max. Thanks a million and yep. stay healthy out there. Yep. Thank you, Scott. It was great. Great to join you. And I appreciate the uh, opportunity. Look forward to talking to you again. Talk to you tomorrow, everybody. Five o'clock.